please turn in your Bibles. We're going to actually read two passages today. The first is from the book of Acts, chapter 6, verses 1 through 7, and then our main passage, which is 1 Timothy 3, 8 through 13. So Acts chapter 6, verse 1 first. While you're turning there, let me uh, give you one other remembrance from our General Assembly. We, we do a lot of singing at General Assembly. Every time we have a break, every time we come back from a meal, every time we restart our meetings, we start with a hymn. And uh, it's, there's a special, powerful sound that comes from over 200 men singing four-part harmony with everything they've got. Talk about raising the roof. It was, it was not unusual to see some of the brothers with their cell phones out videoing the singing so they could send the video back home and people could, could listen. But there's no cell phone that can capture the sound. Uh, and uh, it, it truly is an awesome experience. Maybe right next to that is what's coming this week at family camp where almost 300 people will, well, 250 or so, gather together, and they sing with everything they've got as well. Well, let's read from our first text, Acts chapter 6. Now, in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Now switching over to 1 Timothy chapter 3, Verses 8 through 13. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, and let them also be tested first, then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless." Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves, and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. And here we end the reading of God's Word. I call this message today the men of mercy. That is what deacons are. 
They show forth mercy to those who are in need, to those who are in suffering, but it is not their mercy that is to be highlighted. It is the mercy of God, particularly the mercy of Jesus Christ to sinners that is demonstrated by the men of mercy who have been entrusted with a particular area of service in the church. We've read this morning uh, the first passage, the origin of the office of deacon in the New Testament version of the church. I use that word version because the church existed long, long, long before the New Testament came, but it did undergo a change with the coming of Christ, with the coming of the gospel. So we saw the origin of the office in Acts 6, and then a further elaboration of the qualities that uh, the church is to look for uh, when it selects deacons. It's the qualities, and, and many of these qualities are similar to what we saw in the uh, in the list just above this for elders. There's a lot of overlap in those qualities. Remember when we dealt with the passage on elders, and the same is true for deacons, these are not the qualities of some little group of super-Christians. These are qualities all men should be pursuing as part of our normal course of sanctification, of growth in grace, growing in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, growing in our submission to his will. We all ought to be pursuing these qualities. Those who hold office are those who have made progress in these areas of their sanctification. Notice back in Acts chapter 6, the qualities that they were to look for are very briefly uh, determined and... Um, uh, in verse 3, Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom. That's kind of a summary of all that we are looking for, all that we are to look for. Men of wisdom, full of the Spirit and of wisdom. The, Lord's, the Lord blesses his church as he provides these men uh, it, for their area of ministry. We're going to look again at these, uh, at these two passages in more depth. First of all, the origins of the diaconal office. That word deacon comes from a Greek word, diakonos, which literally means a minister or a servant. A servant. In the context of 1 Timothy 3 and other passages, uh, the context is of a servant that is ordained to a specific task. You notice in Acts chapter 6 that these men were presented to the apostles who laid hands on them, ordaining them to this particular area. A question arises in the book of Romans. Paul mentions a woman, Phoebe, who is a deaconess. Does she hold an ordained office? No, because remember, the general use of that word means servant. Phoebe was not an ordained deaconess, but she was a wonderful servant of the church, providing help for many, many people, a godly example to all of us in that respect. But as far as the ordained office of deacon is concerned, it is clear that the intention of God, the intention of the apostles, was that this office was for men, of mercy, 
a need arises in the church. The church is in its infancy at this point. It is still largely confined to Jerusalem. It is growing as the word of God is being proclaimed, as the apostles during this period of time often went to the temple and they preached in that area of temple that was known as Solomon's Porch, where there were often many, many thousands of people, especially at the feast days. There they taught the people, there they proclaimed the gospel, there they also baptized thousands. There, There was no baptismal pool but there was water for sprinkling. I'm sorry, I just had to get that in there. I just had to get that in there. But, you know, we're dealing with people, people who are not fully sanctified, and problems arise. They always do. A problem arises, uh, a complaint uh, from the Hellenists against the Hebrews. Now, who are the Hellenists and the Hebrews? In the early church, and remember, at this time, almost all the people in this church in Jerusalem are Jews. But there are Jews who come from the dispersion and who have adapted somewhat to Greek, the the Roman Greek culture of the day. And there are Jews who were raised and born and bred and raised in Israel and have kept all the Jewish customs and all the Jewish uh, heritage. So there's two, even within Judaism, there, is this, there was this tension. And as many Jews became believers in Christ, the tension carries over into the church. Some believed uh, the Hellenists, those who were from the dispersion, whose roots are, are not in, uh, directly in Israel, arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. What was the daily distribution? It was food. The early church ran the first food kitchen for those in need. This was was the first example of that. The early church specifically ministered to the widows and those who were also orphans, and very often they were together, the same group of people. At this time, there were only apostles as leaders in the church. This is part of the story of the maturing of the church throughout the first century. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastor-teachers, elders, deacons, all are working, and some of these offices develop in the context of the first century life of the church. So this problem arises, and there is dissension in the church that threatens the peace, the unity, the the spiritual health of the church in Jerusalem. A solution has to be found. The apostles face a problem, though, because they, being the leaders of the church, might be expected to be the ones who jump into the gap here, into into this problem, and solve it by turning their attention to waiting on the tables that were set up for the daily distribution of food. But there's a problem with that, because their calling was to pray and to be ministers of the Word. Their calling was to be out in the city, 
proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. And there's only 24 hours in a day, and if we're going to take several hours to to distrib- distribute the food to the widows and the orphans, that's that much less time we have for our own specific area of work. And so the solution comes. Let's look for men who are filled with the Spirit, who are mature believers, who are filled with the Spirit, who have good reputations, and also have demonstrated wisdom. And we will ordain those men to this particular task of feeding those who are in need. It seemed good to the apostles, it seemed good to the church, and I would add it probably it seemed good to the Holy Spirit to bless the church in this. How do we know the Holy Spirit was pleased and blessed the church? Well, it comes at the end of this passage in verse 7, and the word of God to continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. The health of the church is restored, the mission goes forward, the gospel goes out, and many are coming in to confess their faith in Jesus Christ. Wait, I left off the last part of that sentence, because it's actually a a special thing that gives us a little more insight into the nature of the office of the deacon. You notice that passage ends with this. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Now, why do you think Dr. Luke, when he was writing the book of Acts, included that little notice at the end of this passage on the, on the, the office of deacon? Why did he go out of his way, and, and Luke being inspired by the Holy Spirit, to go out of his way to mention that the number of dis, uh, the, a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. What's the connection? In the Old Testament, help for the poor was associated with the priesthood. Let me read you from Deuteronomy chapter 14. And these are instructions to the people of Israel, particularly in the giving of their tithing, their tithe, uh, to, the, to the Levites. Remember, the Levites did not have any inheritance of land in Israel. They were dependent on the tithe that was given by the people of God and commanded by God to be given to support the priests in their work. And the priests did not have a particular tribal land. They were scattered through the whole land of Israel. And so God instructs the people, you shall not neglect the Levite who is within your towns, for he has no portion or inheritance with you. At the end of every three years, you shall bring out all the tithe of your produce in the same year and lay it up within your towns. And the Levite, because he has no portion or inheritance with you, and the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow who are within your towns, shall come and eat and be filled. That the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands that you do. The tithe was to be brought into the towns where the Levites lived. That tithe was brought in every three years. It was gathered together. 
the Levites would have overseen this. Out of that tithe, the Levites provided for themselves, or the Levites were provided for by the people, but out of that tithe also, as it was overseen by the Levites, who else was cared for? The stranger, the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. The priests were the first deacons. The priests were the first deacons. They were the first ones in their service to God who oversaw provision for the widow and the fatherless. When the priests, during the days of the apostles, saw that the church was taking this ministry seriously, that the church was providing for the widow and the, the orphan, that the church even went so far as to take up that priestly work and institute a special office to carry on that priestly work, I think it was attracted to them. It got their attention, and they were more willing to listen to the gospel as it was being taught when they saw the church taking this ministry seriously. That's what I believe was, was happening, and I think this is why Luke mentions this at the end of the passage of the origin of the deacons. When we look at Paul's passage in 1 Timothy 3, 8 through 13, we find the qualities in elaboration of the qualities for deacons, similar uh, to those for elder in many ways. Some of them are, are exactly the same. And I'm going to not go through every one of them. There's no great mystery as to what these things are, what the, these qualities are. Uh, but I do want to kind of group them together under certain headings. And the first heading is this, moderation. Moderation. Some of these qualities can be summed up under this heading of moderation. Paul writes that they are not to be addicted to wine. Moderation. They are not greedy. Moderation. They are content with what God has given them. They are content where they are. Husband of one wife. Yes, even back then it was it was a status, if you will, uh, uh, to have a, a, a multitude of wives, a multiple number of wives. For the church, going back to God's original intention in the garden, one man, one, one husband, one wife. Be satisfied with the wife of your youth. Actually, Proverbs, I've always wondered at this. So Solomon has, you know, hundreds and hundreds of wives and concubines and so forth, and yet Solomon writes this, Rejoice with the wife of your youth. <laughs> and of course, we know what happens to Solomon because of his multitude of wives and concubines. They turn his heart from the Lord. Moderation, then, not addicted to wine, not greedy, husband of one wife. Those are indicators of a, a person who is settled and content with God's providence and has a, a measure of self-control over his desires. Another quality 
progress in understanding. Now, where did I get that from? Notice what Paul says, that a deacon is to hold the mystery of the faith in good conscience. He is to hold the mystery of the faith in good conscience. Now, we often think, well, deacons aren't called to be theologians. Uh, They're not primarily teachers, though they certainly can, and we'll look at this in a moment, at some of the early deacons of the church. But they are, in fact, supposed to hold the mystery of the faith in a good, clear conscience. What is that? First of all, what is the mystery of the faith? Paul doesn't define it right in this verse. He doesn't say, and this is the mystery. But he does, actually, a couple verses down. A couple verses down from our passage in 1 Timothy 3, verse 16, he writes this, Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He's changed the term, but he's still talking about a mystery. The mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Now, who is he writing about here in the mystery of godliness? Who is he writing about? I think I heard Christ, Jesus. I heard that. Yes. Yes. Whatever whatever the mystery of, of, of the faith is or the mystery of godliness is, guess where it focuses? On Christ. On the whole Christ. On Christ. That's where it's focused. Deacons must hold the mystery, and I'm, I'm going to go out on a limb here because of the, the way that Paul writes this, and it just a few verses down from his mentioning the mystery of, of faith, he talks the, about the mystery of godliness, and the mystery of godliness focuses our attention directly on the Lord Jesus Christ, his incarnation, his resurrection, his ascension, the gospel of Christ being proclaimed among the nations and believed on in the world, Christ himself ascending to heaven and seated at the right hand of the Father. It's all about Christ. And the ministry of the deacon, and this is why he should hold this mystery of the faith in good conscience, the ministry of a deacon. You might say he represents the church. No He represents Christ. He represents the Christ of mercy to those in need. When they see the deacon in his work, they see Christ holding out mercy to the world. They must hold this mystery with a clear conscience, a good conscience, The office of the deacon is not specifically a teaching office, but there are many opportunities in the course of serving Christ by caring for those in need where a deacon will have the opportunity to share the gospel, to teach people about the Lord Jesus Christ, and to teach people also about the way of life of the believer. It's not just handing out 
gifts. It is. It does, in fact, involve teaching, and very often it is the it is the deacon who makes the first introduction to the Lord Jesus Himself. They do not primarily represent the church. They primarily represent Christ. A third area that Paul focuses on for qualifications is family life. He talks about the deacon's wife. In very similar words, he talks about an elder's wife. Sober-minded and so forth, respectable and so forth, all of those qualities. He mentions also, as he did with elders, that a deacon should manage his household well. We understand when it says the husband of one wife, that's not quite a, a statement that deacons need to be married, though it is obviously easier to gauge their ability to manage their families if they do in fact have a family. But you can still look at how a, a single man manages his own affairs. Is he, uh, is he uh, responsible and so forth? Uh, yes, we, we've usually understood that he's, he's a ma uh, husband of one wife, meaning that he does not have multiple li wives. He manages his household well. Yes, he will have a, a deacon's office is not an office of ruling. That's the ruling elder and the minister as well. But it is an office where there is responsibility for managing certain aspects of the church's work. And thus, he should also be able to demonstrate managing his household well. I've hinted at this next point, and now I'm going to jump into it more fully. Deacons are often the front line of the gospel message. They're the pointed end of the spear. They're the troops that go in first. Any of you are veterans of the Marines... They're the Marine Recon. Because they go out and minister on behalf of Christ. Christ. It's a recognition, the deacon's office is a recognition that we live in a world under the curse. Where there is suffering, where there is death that causes widows and orphans, where there is need and the deacon representing Christ first is the one who goes out and not just ministering to the church, but ministering even outside the church. He brings Christ's mercy to a world that is suffering. And therefore, he gains a standing to speak the gospel. We often maybe think this is unjust, but people are not really ready to listen to us until we've gained a certain level of respect or acceptance by them. I'll call it a standing. Very often the, the, there's a barrier that says, who are you to talk to me about sin and salvation and Christ and heaven and hell and all of that? Who are you? Many of us would say, well, I'm just a, a guy. And that's true. 
But if they have seen a person who is anxious to care for them and minister to their needs, they're more willing. It's just a fact of human nature. They're more willing to listen. And so the deacon doing his work gains a standing to speak to others. People are more willing to listen when they are introduced to the mercy of Christ in action. Let me tell you an experience I had. Now, I did. I, we didn't have deacons ordained up in our church in Big Bear. Uh, so, and we didn't have elders either. So guess who got to do all that? All right. There was a, a family in our church. The wife was a member of our church. Very sweet lady. Her husband did not come to church, and though he had some familiarity because of his wife with, with the Christian faith, he was uh, remained in his Native American. Uh, he was a full-blooded Indian or Native American. Uh, he did not come to church, but he was disabled. He had injured himself at work and was not able to work uh, for uh, long periods of time. He would pick up an odd job here and there, and then then he would be, it, the old injury would be ag aggravated again, and he wouldn't be able to work for long periods. Our church, on many occasions, gave this family aid. And I would take that help to them, sit down with them, and they were grateful. And one day, the husband who had shown absolutely no interest, said this to me, you people practice what you say you believe. Now, he did not become a convert to Christianity during this time, but he was willing to listen. He was willing to listen. Why? Because he saw the message and the people in harmony, doing what we say we should do. It was a wonderful time, and we spent over an hour that day talking about Christ and talking about the gospel. But this is what happens when deacons are doing their work, and they're out among people. People will see that you practice what you believe. Deacons are the ones that often make introductions. I'm not going to take time to read Acts chapter 8 right now, but Acts chapter 8 traces the work of one of the deacons, Philip. And guess what we find Philip doing? Witnessing, teaching, healing. He's busy as a deacon, but he's not just giving help to those who are in need. He's actually evangelizing at the same time. There's definitely a, a crossover in, the, in his work. We could also look at Stephen. Now, I'm not saying deacons are going to end up getting stoned. That may be true, but not right off the bat. But notice, Stephen defends the gospel. In his defense, he, he doesn't defend himself. What he does is tell the Sanhedrin the truth that everything in their history 
is leading up to Jesus Christ. He makes the introduction, if you will. Several years ago, there was a particularly bad hurricane. I wonder how many of you remember Hurricane Katrina. You know, we watched it in the Gulf of Mexico. We watched it hit the, the coastline near New Orleans. It actually was slightly to the east of New Orleans, but the circulation of that hurricane took the waters of Lake Pontchartrain and pushed them into the city of New Orleans. It wasn't actually the river that flooded the banks. It was Lake Pontchartrain that flooded the banks, broke down the levees and so forth. We watched all that on TV. That was the first real effort by the Orthodox Presbyterian Church to engage in a broad program of diaconal help to those who were suffering and hope and in need. People from our own presbytery, Dave Nakla, who was a member, he was an elder at our church in La Mirada, organized a team of men to go out, begin demolition work on churches and on homes that had been damaged, uh, start the process of rebuilding, but also to go out and bring the comfort of the gospel to the people of that area. From that initial work with Hurricane Katrina, the Orthodox Presbyterian Church has revived an aggressive diaconal work. Today, our deacons go all over the world when there's a, a disaster. Our deacons go all over the world and bring the mercy of Jesus Christ to thousands and thousands of people. We, we have been blessed because not only have we seen the suffering of thousands of people alleviated, but we have seen many people open to the gospel who would not normally be open. And we have seen people come to the Lord Jesus Christ because of the work of deacons. Pray that the Lord would supply our church with officers, both elders and deacons. We have two men right now serving as deacons, and since I have been on the session as your ministerial advisor, I have been very impressed with their work. They are on top of everything we talk about, and they are wise, and they are good men. But we can always use more. Remember, the deacon is very often the one who introduces people to Christ. The deacon holds the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, and that mystery of the faith focuses on Christ. A healthy church will have deacons bringing God's mercy into a fallen world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, bless your church with men who are wise, men who are filled with the Spirit, men who are of good repute, 
men who hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Raise them up, Lord, to serve you in the church, to serve as ambassadors of Christ in a particular way. We pray that you would raise up elders and deacons for this congregation, that it might grow, even as the blessing was promised in ancient Israel, that as the tithe came in and was distributed to both Levite, to sojourner, to widow and orphan, the tithe, uh, that faithfulness on the part of God's people would be rewarded with blessing. And the faithfulness of deacons is rewarded with blessing that they will have a good standing and great confidence in, in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Father, hear our prayer this day. As this church prepares for changes, perhaps a new pastor coming in the, in the near future, we also pray that you would add to this number the men who will help that pastor and help guide the church and minister in the name of Jesus Christ. In, in that name we pray. Amen.